Hello, good afternoon. Welcome, good afternoon. Thanks for saying that back. That doesn't happen very often. Welcome to both our in-person as well as our online audience. We're so glad you're all here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, my name is Kimberly Flowers. I direct our Global Food Security Project here at CSIS, so this is an event under that. I also direct a center-wide initiative called the Humanitarian Agenda. This event comes at a really interesting time for our team as several of us are headed out this weekend to Ghana. It's actually my first time to go, so I'm really excited about learning from the panelists today and thinking about Ghana before I head out. Um, along with the head of our Africa program, I'll be leading a congressional staff delegation to Ghana to look at the food security programs there that are part of the U.S. Feed the Future initiative. Ghana really stands out as a su success story, and I'm personally very excited to see firsthand some of the best practices for reducing hunger, poverty, and malnutrition. I'd like to congratulate Reed Hamill, the author of the report and the senior fellow on our team for just another report well done in her um, now more than two years at CSIS. She's produced a number of key publications that explore the efficiency of US policy and programming and food security. She has an academic background as an economic demographer, um, coupled with experience working for USAID implementing partners like Save the Children as well as a real passion for reaching the most vulnerable populations. So she's the right person to sort of dive into this kind of research and provide us with some compelling analysis of how investment in social safety nets can contribute to broader global food security goals. Reed, over to you. Great, thank you, Kimberly. Um, yes, I've been looking forward to this event uh, for quite a while now, so thank you all for joining us this afternoon, uh, both here in person and online. Uh, we do regret that we couldn't schedule this event at a more convenient time uh, for our colleagues in Ghana and elsewhere in Africa, but the conversation is being recorded and will be available on our program site for subsequent viewing, just FYI. Um, so we're here to discuss the potential of social protection program investments, speci specifically cash transfers at the household level to improve food and nutrition security outcomes in sub-Saharan Africa. You know you have a great job when you can write a paper on something that you think is important, travel to learn more about it, and then get the lineup of experts that we have here today. So I'm feeling particularly lucky today. I wanna thank my team uh, for the flexibility uh, on this work and, and for their help over the last few months. And of course, I need to thank the many colleagues I met with uh, both here and in Ghana who took the time out of their busy schedules to share their expertise and insights. So the report focuses on Ghana's Livelihood Empowerment Against Poverty, or LEAP program. Uh, with a brief peppering of contextual evidence. So I'd like for today's conversation to complement that balance to illuminate the, the broader state of, of social protection practice and documented high returns of well-targeted and, and well-designed cash transfer programs across the subcontinent. So today we'll hear from uh, Rhoda Osei-Afoul of the Ghana Center for Democratic Development about the current state of the LEAP conversation in 2018, one year after the return of the center-right government under President Akufo-Addo. We'll then turn to Dan Gilligan of the International Food Policy Research Institute, who leads a global team focused on health and nutrition research there. 
Dan will share some broader evidence on connections between cash transfers and health and nutrition outcomes, including how we need to think about program design in order to maximize the potential of that pathway. And then finally, we'll hear from Laura Ralston of the World Bank Social Protection and Labor Practice. Uh, excuse me. Laura recently published a meta-analysis of safety net programs in Africa that she'll tell us more about. But I actually first came across Laura's perspective in a blog she had written for Brookings in 2016 on monitoring poverty from space. Uh, in that blog, if you'll permit a brief digression, uh, she posits that we can use satellite data not only to target development programming, but also potentially to measure whether households and communities are moving out of extreme poverty and could graduate from these types of cash transfer programs. So I hope we may have a few minutes to discuss later on um, some of the advancements in, in data to reduce very expensive activities like Ghana's ongoing household registry. Um, I see some other social protection uh, experts here in the room, and there's a lot of interesting work going on in this space if you're curious uh, to learn more. Um, also over hosted at the bank, uh, there's the Partnership for Economic Inclusion, which is carrying forth CGAPS graduation work. Uh, Innovations for Poverty Action also has a concentration of research in the social protection space, also thinking very carefully about graduation issues. Uh, and then, of course, IFPRI has been working in this area for, for quite some time. We came across some very careful thinking around social protection and nutrition outcomes in IFPRI's Bangladesh office uh, a couple of years ago now when we were out there looking at Feed the Future's broader portfolio. Broadly, uh, in the donor space, it's been particularly heartening to see President Jim Kim's leadership on human capital investment at the World Bank, this, this emphasis on gray matter infrastructure. The World Bank also launched a, a new human capital project this past fall, and just last week, Dr. Kim was talking about how a human capital index is predictive of economic growth and thus might logically be incorporated into sovereign debt ratings, which I think is a very interesting way to think about incentivizing countries to get serious about these kinds of investments. The U.S. government has also shown very strong technical leadership in the nutrition space, but like donors around the world, it struggles to assemble the resources to fund nutrition programming, including the kinds of nutrition-sensitive social protection investments that we're going to be talking about today, despite very strong evidence of their efficacy. So yesterday, as I think you all know, the White House released its uh, budget proposal for FY 2019, which proposes to cut the overall state and U.S. aid budget by 26 percent from 2017 enacted levels. And we know that that's unlikely to garner too much support in Congress, um, but I think it's something to be keeping very carefully in mind at, at this juncture. USAID and state also just released a joint strategic plan for FY 2018 through FY 2022, which includes the following excerpt, which I'll quote. U.S. security and prosperity are bolstered when other countries achieve economic and political stability, resilience, and self-reliance through investments in areas such as food and water security, energy security, good governance, health, education, and economic growth. To me, that sounds like a prescription to invest in social protection programs. Uh, so turning quickly then to the report that we're here to launch, uh, let me just give you a quick overview of Ghana's LEAP program and the report's main recommendations so that we can move into our panel. 
Uh, Ghana has been a democratic and economic success story by many metrics, as again I think is familiar to this audience. It has posted very high rates of, uh, high rates of economic growth over the past decade in particular, but inequality has simultaneously increased. Extreme poverty is concentrated in the country's three northern regions, uh, which you can see in a table on page 8 of the report. So, for example, in the 2013 Living Standards Survey, and there's another one underway in the field right now, um, but for the latest data that we have cleaned and compiled, we see about 6% uh, of the population in the greater Accra area is living uh, in poverty, but those figures uh, are in excess of 50% in northern region and over 70% in upper west region. And in that same table, you'll see that the distribution of LEAP beneficiary households also largely tracks uh, that, that incidence of poverty. So Ghana's LEAP program began in 2008 as a relatively small pilot cash transfer program for orphans and vulnerable children who were also extremely poor. By 2012, it had expanded to encompass the elderly poor and people with severe disabilities, and it had connected all of its enrollees with the National Health Insurance Scheme, which is a, a unique feature of Ghana's cash transfer program. By last year, there were over 213,000 households enrolled, uh, with the target of reaching 350,000 this year. So the rate of expansion of LEAP right now is extraordinarily rapid. Meanwhile, Ghana was also selected by the U.S. government as one of 19 Feed the Future focus countries in which to concentrate investments with the objective of reducing extreme poverty and the prevalence of stunting. And Ghana has now recently again been included as one of 12 new target countries going forward. So I think it's, it's a nice opportunity now to reflect upon its uh, multi-year strategy. USAID, Ghana's Feed the Future uh, strategy the, the past strategy was, was somewhat unusual in uh, its clear attention to the most vulnerable segments of society, which were not well suited to benefit from agricultural value chains uh, oriented activities, and perhaps uh, due to a lack of land or labor or other in investment capital. So in 2014, uh, the mission, uh, the USAID mission, had allocated $12 million to fund a pilot expansion of LEAP to a new group of beneficiaries pregnant women and children under one year old in partnership with UNICEF. This program was called LEAP 1000 as it was somewhat consistent with the thousand days approach. Uh, it went up to children age one and not, not two, um, so, but they didn't call it LEAP 700, I don't know, um, to invest in early childhood uh, nutrition and, and these LEAP 1000 beneficiaries had to meet the same poverty criteria as the regular LEAP beneficiaries, and they received the same cash transfer levels, uh, which still remain quite low, but have increased multiple times since 2012. LEAP 1000 was much better targeted than uh, the original LEAP, at least at the time of its own 2012 baseline survey. So 89%, 89% of LEAP 1000 beneficiaries fell below the poverty line. On average, these households spent 78% of their budgets on food, and three-quarters of them reported that a child under five had not always been given enough food to eat. The National LEAP Secretariat has now added this category of beneficiaries, pregnant women and children under one year old, as a fourth category nationwide, everywhere that they are expanding LEAP in, uh, enrollment. 
um, they, they're, they're including this group in their intake with great potential for nutrition as well as, of course, livelihood gains uh, to interrupt the intergenerational transmission of poverty, getting back to this idea of steering investments towards gray matter infrastructure. So we think that's great. The report gets into a lot of topics that I am not going to go into now in the interest of time. I, I do hope you'll take a look at it. Uh, but it's worth noting that LEAP is still a relatively small piece of Ghana's social protection architecture as well as its budget, despite it being more progressively targeted than many other public welfare programs and subsidies, and much, much better targeted than others. I know Rhoda will tell us a little bit more about this and, and specifically about agricultural livelihoods linkages through the Planting for Food and Jobs program. The report also talks about the sort of perennial tension between benefit levels that are sufficient to drive meaningful welfare change on one hand and uh, population coverage and expansion on the other. Um, there are a lot of political uh, conversations around this issue. Um, and, and it's hard to get a good consensus. <laughs> um, Ghana also has now transitioned to a fully electronic and biometric payment system, which improves transparency and reduces payment leakages uh, with as yet largely unrealized potential to link to other financial services. But I know that there are very smart people thinking about how to do that better right now. Uh, it gets into appropriate profiling and targeting of eligible groups, which brings up more of an existential question, really, about what kind of program it is that LEAP seeks to be. So is it really livelihoods empowerment? Is the idea to foster independence and graduation? And under what conditions is graduation appropriate and for what types of beneficiaries? Or is this really an income support program? It targets severely disabled people, uh, elderly people, segments of the population for whom it might not be reasonable to have uh, expectations for, for high levels of economic inclusion. So what's the takeaway here? Well, first, we just think this is a great example of where it really made sense for USAID to contribute to the expansion of and to the learning around a nationally owned social protection program. If the objective of a development program is to reduce extreme poverty and malnutrition, it makes sense to start by working with extremely poor people who are malnourished. Uh, USAID also did this, uh, I, I, I should say, and give credit with its uh, spring and ring projects in addition to LEAP 1000. And in many places, they, they sought to overlap those interventions with some success. But donor-funded development projects are are never sufficient to drive permanent change in health and welfare outcomes without local public sector support. And we know that governance and political accountability from national to village levels really matters. So that takes us back to the broader conversation about incentivizing governments to care about equitable human capital outcomes, as Dr. Kim has repeatedly discussed. So then very briefly, the report offers four pretty general recommendations for USAID. The first is, uh, as the current set of Feed the Future target countries continue to develop their strategies, that this target profile of beneficiaries should remain central. So start by identifying and reaching the segments of the population whose outcomes you wish to influence, and then figure out the modality that makes sense to do so. Number two, social protection investments often make sense as complementary to those in the agricultural sector to, to reach the most vulnerable. This is particularly true in shock-prone environments to better promote and protect resilience. 
Third, we think that the agency and the Bureau for Food Security specifically should continue to think and to talk about investments in national data and decision-making systems. And um, I think, excuse me, credit is, is very much due. These conversations um, are, are certainly underway. The types of public data goods uh, that they might investment often have much greater utility for uh, a broader set of actors than the sometimes burdensome project-specific M&E uh, activities and, and outputs. And then finally, uh, the f informal financial services work, uh, particularly through the ring projects, village savings and loan associations, was really very widely recognized. Almost everyone that I spoke with in Ghana last fall had um, a lot of really positive feedback um, about this model. And I think the, the pairing of both formal as well as these kinds of informal financial services with social protection as well as with agricultural interventions can leverage, as we'll hear from our experts, um, and really improve upon both types of interventions uh, alone. So then, even, even sort of more briefly and more higher level, uh, the report also offers a couple of recommendations uh, for the government of Ghana to consider. Uh, first being that we think that the, the current implementation challenges uh, are really merit a bit more focus and, and, and attention before continuing this very accelerated scale up and expansion of the program, specifically roles and responsibilities around linkages to nutrition or to livelihoods activities uh, should be clarified. It's important to get the implementation details right, including things like staffing levels at the regional and district level uh, to ensure quality and accountability uh, before growing so very quickly. Second, and this is a little bit of a harder one, but it, it is worth taking a hard look at the relative resource allocations across various social protection and public transfer programs, given targeting efficiency, that is how pro-poor they are, uh, and the documented returns on investment. So LEAP, as I've said, is very well targeted, while some other programs that cost much more and do much less are not. And then finally, given Ghana's overall economic growth, uh, and at the same time its public sector resource constraints, um, and, and it's, it's largely beyond the scope of the report to think about structuring these incentives, but, but we do think that the government needs to continue to prioritize domestic resource mobilization through the enforcement of existing tax law. Um, that's something that came up a lot in, in the conversations I had as well. So I'm going to stop there and invite our panelists to join me, please, up here, uh, and we can get into some of these areas in a little bit more detail. Okay, thanks, thank you. Uh, thank you all again for, for taking the time uh, to join us today and particularly to Rhoda for coming all the way from Accra to contribute her perspective. Um, 
So Rhoda, I'd, I'd love to start with you. Um, I gave a little bit of an overview of LEAP's background, but it would be great to hear from where you're sitting and the conversations you're having, uh, what, what is salient about LEAP uh, right now at home? Hello. All right, thank you very much, Reed. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be part of this. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I thank you for bringing into focus such an important program um, at home in Ghana. What I will try to do briefly is to um, uh, give a brief overview of some of the social intervention programs we've had in Ghana and uh, touch on some of the key issues to do with the LEAP program. And then um, other new programs that have come um, in the last uh, 12 months in Ghana uh, with the change of government. And then if there's time, uh, we can go into some issues around graduation and recommendations. Uh, but to start with, uh, let me just say that over, over the past one and a half decade, uh, there's no doubt that there's been an uh, increase in the number of uh, social interventions that have been uh, introduced by various governments, uh, many of uh, which have direct or indirect implications for social protection. Um, one thing uh, that is worth no, uh, noting is that across the political divide, if you're familiar with, the, uh, with Ghana's uh, political environment, it's quite competitive. We have two major political parties, um, and the electoral cycle is very uh, competitive. But across the, the two major political divide, uh, there seems to be some tacit consensus among uh, the political elites that indeed uh, social protection can be an important pathway uh, to poverty alleviation and that has been manifested in the continued interest of these different governments um, in this program. So uh, with the changes in, in government, you, you don't see any, um, any uh, negative consequences for the, uh, continuing, uh, the continuation of this program. So uh, over the past few years, uh, LEAP has, uh, has existed as an important uh, intervention for the various governments. Indeed, it has uh, increased in scope. Um, let me also say that Ghana's social protection interventions have enjoyed considerable support from development partners. I would mention here the World Bank, uh, DFID, uh, UNICEF, and then lately um, USAID. Um, many of these programs have been expanding over the years in terms of coverage, uh, but the challenge across these different interventions is sustainable financing, and this has been manifested in delays in payments or delays in release of funding for implementation of these programs. Now, just briefly for me to touch on some of the uh, other programs that we have in Ghana, let me say that these are quite uh, multifaceted. So in the area of education, in health, um, labor, um, energy, we have different interventions that have been introduced to sort of uh, reduce uh, hardship on, on, on the average Ghanaian. In the area of education, we've had a school feeding program which basically seeks to uh, provide one hot meal a day uh, for for children uh, in, in vulnerable situations. So each school going there, these school children are supposed to enjoy one hot meal a day. It's been in place for some time now. Um, another program related is the school's capitation grant, uh, which is uh, for every Ghanaian child basically waives uh, school fees for children in primary schools, so you don't have to pay any school fees for you to go to uh, public primary school. And then there's also the free school uniforms and the free school standards, which is uh, a bit targeted. It's not available to every guardian, but 
to those who need it most. Um, in the area, in the sector of uh, employment, we've had the Youth Employment Program, which basically sought to provide employment for the youth uh, through various initiatives. It has transformed over the years, but it's still, uh, it's still in existence. We've had, uh, we have other programs like the Labor Intensive Public Work, uh, which uh, basically provides some kind of off-season uh, employment uh, for people with productive capacity, but in poor communities, uh, largely supported by the World Bank. And then other uh, programs uh, which provide skills development, uh, uh, microcredits uh, to entrepreneurs, uh, Ghanaian entrepreneurs, young people who want to start up something for themselves. Uh, there are other issues, uh, other interventions in the energy sector, but I will not go into that. Uh, but over the past one year, we had a change in government uh, in last year. Uh, in January, we had a new government. And within the year of this new government, we've had a number of uh, interventions. Many of these are quite huge, very massive in terms of scope. One uh, of these is the Free Senior High School um, program, which is a flagship uh, program for the new administration, basically trying to extend what we have in the primary schools where education is free and affordable for every Ghanaian child. So last year, over 350,000 Ghanaian students were able to enter uh, the senior secondary schools without paying any form of school fees. Um, uh, over 400 million uh, Ghana cities, uh, probably coming around 100 uh, million USD, uh, was invested in that program within the first uh, uh, term of implementation. And then this year, 2018, is, is expected that uh, it has been estimated that about 1.2 billion uh, cities uh, will, be will go into that program. So like earlier on, you, you, you made mention, these are programs that are taking a, a lot of money, uh, I mean, absorbing a lot of money, uh, a lot of investment. But uh, the, the basic uh, idea is to make education free, affordable for every Ghanaian. Over the first year of implementation, uh, enrollment in senior high schools has been up um, to eight, up by 84%. So uh, about 90,000 more students were able to enter senior high school if you compare it to the previous figures. Um, there's also a related program, which is one hot meal a day for day students. So the, the structure of our senior high school is that you have day students and you have boarding students. And our government is trying to also make up for some days for day students. So every day student is now entitled to have one hot meal a day, every school day. And um, th this is also related to the school, uh, free senior high school. Another major intervention which has, uh, it, it, has potential as far as uh, social protection is concerned, potential for the poor, um, is the planting for food and jobs, by which government is seeking to boost agricultural uh, production, boost employment for a lot of people, Ghanaian farmers, uh, but through the idea of providing uh, subsidies uh, for, for farmers. So, if you are able to produce about a hectare of land, uh, of farmland, you qualify, uh, once you enroll, you qualify for some subsidies, up to 50% uh, on, on inputs such as seeds and fertilizers, and also you, you, you get some extension, agriculture extension services uh, from uh, government. It also was set in motion um, somewhere last year, and already we are hearing figures uh, about the number of employment uh, that it has created. I believe it has a lot of potential, especially if we are looking at linking um, extremely poor households uh, to productive activities and productive ventures. Um, 
there's also another, this is the last one I'll touch on, um, another major project is the Infrastructure for Poverty uh, Eradication Project, IPEP, and this has various uh, interrelated components. The first one is that government is trying to make available a million dollar, uh, dollars to every constituency. There are 275 constituencies throughout Ghana. Government has promised, it was a major campaign promise, so they are trying to live up to that. Government is trying to make available one million USD to to every constituency, basically to help them meet their basic development needs, uh, create employment, uh, and generate some income for themselves. Um, another leg of that uh, program is um, another huge intervention called One District, One Factory. So government is trying to make sure that each of the 216 administrative uh, districts in Ghana have a factory, uh, we are looking at uh, industrialization, we are looking at manufacturing, so that resources within the various districts will not just go to waste. Uh, if you look at agriculture, some of the challenges we've had is farm produce going to waste, especially when you have uh, bumper harvest and the rest. So they are trying to make use of the resources that are available in the various districts. This is largely going to be a sort of private uh, public partnership. Government is trying to facilitate the process by inviting investors to invest in these district. Uh, the process has been underway. They've received a number of applications. They've screened them. And uh, just to say that they've, uh, they are quite advanced in, in implementation. Um, there are other also related projects like making sure that every, every village farming community with difficulty uh, in, in access to water has a dam. Government is going to construct dams in these communities so to boost agricultural production and also to establish um, warehouses in every district uh, to help with storage of farm produce. Now, coming back to the LEAP, which is uh, a focus for our discussion today, let me say that um, there's no doubt that LEAP is making uh, some impact on the beneficiary households uh, in the area of education, school enrollment and retention, in the area of access to healthcare uh, and other issues. Uh, but of course, um, uh, there's no doubt that it has some challenges, uh, but also some efforts have been made to address uh, some of these challenges. Over the years, I'll just touch on a few, uh, some of the progress that have been made. Um, one uh, is that there was a challenge with financing. So at some point, um, the bi-monthly payments that beneficiaries were, were, were getting uh, would not come on time. There were challenges with their timely release or timely payment. But I think for some time now, over the past two years uh, at least, we've seen some consistency in payment. The payment have been forthcoming. And I think this is some uh, one area that uh, progress has been made. Um, the targeting, there's no doubt that the targeting is quite effective. Uh, like you indicated, over 80% of households uh, um, under the LEAP program have been found to be below the poverty level. So the targeting is quite effective. Uh, there were issues to do with payments, but uh, government has tried to introduce uh, electronic and biometric payments uh, to address the challenges to do with uh, challenges associated with payment, and also try to uh, include, I mean, boost financial inclusion for a lot of these folks who are outside of the formal banking sector. Um, there's been a launch of the National Household Registry, which is uh, to help with effective targeting, especially of programs across sectors. So the Household Registry is 
collecting data on households in Ghana so that uh, we have a single database and uh, we know who and who qualifies for what uh, under any circumstance. That's underway. Data collection has been completed for, uh, they are currently in the northern part of the country, but they've completed with one region, they've moved up to the next, and it's expected to uh, cover all the remaining regions in the country. Um, they've introduced a case management unit as a feedback, feedback loop uh, so that beneficiaries can, whatever grievances they have, they can reach out to the central management uh, in Accra and put across whatever concerns they have. And I think that's also commendable. Um, one issue that has been identified with the various interventions you have in Ghana has been the fragmented nature and uncoordinated approach to many of these. And um, this is being addressed, the, twin, the, the, the new national social protection policy, which was uh, launched a couple of years ago, has given uh, responsibility to the Ministry of Gender, Children and Social Protection to coordinate the different interventions, of course, acting um, uh, together with the other uh, key ministries. So I think this is also a step in the right direction. Um, they are trying to uh, boost education sensitization uh, on on health and, and healthy practices. So during leave payments, they do a lot of sensitization on issues around the leave, but now they've included um, education on nutrition and uh, good, good health practices. Uh, now, talking about challenges, um, despite the progress that have been made, I think there are still a number of issues that still need to be addressed. One of them, uh, I, you mentioned, uh, you touched on, is the fact that um, LEAP is yet to really become a springboard for people to leap out of their, 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 their poverty levels. So uh, at some point, you, you seem to have some confusion whether it's, a, it's just a social safety net uh, or it's really supposed to help people leap out of their uh, poverty situation. Because of the, the, the design of the program, this is a program that uh, substantially targets people with little or no productive capacities. We are looking at people 65 year old and plus. Uh, we are looking at people with severe forms of disability. And so the issue is how can these people become productive? How can you link such people to productive uh, ventures? So that's a challenge and we need to clarify this ob the objective of LEAP and realign uh, uh, the modality for implementation. Uh, I don't think, um, I think we can have uh, different objectives for some categories of people. It can be a safety net. Uh, they don't have uh, any secured income and, and so LEAP can be seen in that regard as, as a safety net for them. But for other categories, we should be able to link them to productive ventures so that they can migrate out of, out of the program and the program can also expand to cover a lot more people who are still outside of of the, uh, of the coverage of the program. Benefit levels are still low, uh, currently around uh, 15 USD uh, every two months. I think it's, it's still low if we are looking at uh, people using this meaningfully uh, in their lives. Uh, funding uh, is still an issue, uh, sources of funding. We need to look into very, very sustainable uh, sources of funding. Of course, like you said, if we uh, prioritize well, we can still get, um, uh, funding from uh, from central government uh, from the budget allocation and, and, and something that they will have to government will have to look at. Um, the, there's a challenge with linking beneficiaries to productive ventures, largely also because the nature of the local economy, some of the rural economies, the nature is such that I mean there's very little you can link people up to. 
many of these communities are largely uh, into subsistence farming, and so opportunities are quite limited. But th this is where there's an opportunity in the new interventions being implemented by government, the one district, one factory, the opportunities for people to, to be linked up to some of these things. And it's also another area that we will have to look at. LEAP currently still um, does not cover um, many more folks who are outside, uh, who are below the poverty uh, level, who are within, who are extremely poor. And so we need to do a lot more to cover as many of these people as possible. I, for instance, believe that given the situation of malnutrition in our country, there are a lot of young children who, uh, by virtue of being in poor household, are very malnourished. And I think that in, in looking forward, if we are to expand leave, we should try and cover up households with, with children under five because malnutrition within this group is, is still a problem. Um, there's still minimal participation of civil society groups in the entire process, and I think th th there's a need for CSOs to get involved, not only in terms of monitoring, uh, but also supporting the process. Um, I think I'll end here, and then uh, later on if there are issues, uh, especially to do with graduation, because in the past um, few months, the Minister for Gender, uh, Children and Social Protection announced that they are going to graduate people on the LEAP program for some time. I mean, since, imp uh, since implementation, um, we haven't seen any uh, serious um, graduation of beneficiaries. People who have been on the program uh, have, have been on it, except those who have been passing away. And so it's important that uh, we look into getting people out of this. But of course, you are not just pushing them out of it. You have to make sure that they are on safe grounds. But the ministry has indicated intention to graduate people who have been on the program for more than two years. Uh, and they are going to do that this year. And so there are a lot of issues um, all along have these people been sensitized that they were going to be pushed out. And if you are pushing them out, uh, what are the safety grounds that they are, they are landing on? So these are some of the issues that we will need to touch on. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Rhoda. That, you covered a lot of ground. Thank you very much. Um, I, I do have some follow-up questions for you, um, but I'm going to hold off for a few minutes. Um, I'd love to turn to Dan now um, to, to get a bit of a broader contextual perspective. Uh, Dan has spent his career uh, thinking about health and nutrition outcomes um, with a lot of experience in the social protection space. And so help us think about uh, Ghana's program uh, in the context of the subcontinent. Great. Um, thanks very much, Reed. Um, so I've been asked to talk about um, how social protection programs can improve food security and nutrition in Africa um, and, and link that to uh, LEAP's experience and what some of the potential for LEAP's impacts might be. Um, so I'm going to talk first a little bit about some of the, some of the review literature that's out there on these outcomes. Um, and then in some, in some areas, there's not as much evidence as we'd like. And so um, IFPRI, along with um, a growing number of partners now, are kind of experimenting with different methods to improve nutrition outcomes in particular from social protection programs. So I'll talk about how we think that needs to be um, built into the design of programs, what factors should be considered, and then, and then I'll give a couple of examples of uh, what I think are some interesting uh, attempts to tr try to improve nutrition impacts of social protection. Um, IFPRI has a review study that was actually just published um, last month uh, looking at the impacts of social protection programs on food security. Um, this review is actually covers uh, 46 programs in 25 countries, not just in Africa. So there's Africa, Asia, and Latin American examples. 
um, generally very positive results. So they measure food security. I'm not an author on this study. It's my colleagues in my division. Um, so they measure uh, food security both in terms of the value of food consumption um, and also in terms of calories. And they show growth. Um, so they do a meta-analysis of these, of these 46 programs and show growth in both. There's a 13% growth in the value of food consumption and 8% growth in calorie acquisition. And because the, val the value goes up sort of faster than calories, it suggests that diet quality is also being improved. And they, they actually look at different components of the diet and show that a lot of that growth is coming through animal source foods, um, which would be an excellent source of improvement in nutrition, particularly for children. Um, so it does suggest that you can get an improvement in diets and in household food security through a, basically most of these are cash transfer or food ration programs, but they don't really have explicit nutrition objectives or other explicit nutrition programming. So at least we do see, and, and again, so pretty consistent evidence of improvements in, in food consumption in diets and households from transfers. Um, and actually, I, I want to mention that the, the impacts in Africa um, are generally larger on most of the outcomes than they are in Latin America and, and the, the Asian countries. Um, but in general, we don't think that cash transfers alone are really going to make a, a, a massive improvement in nutritional status. It's just that the gradient of income, the gradient of improvement in nutrition through income is just not steep enough. Um, so you would need really massive in, um, growth in income sustained for many, many years um, for help, for, to see a really broad kind of population level improvements in nutritional status. Um, so we're going to have to do more. We're going to have to do something else. And that's where I want to spend most of my time. Um, uh, Marie Ruel and Harold Alderman at IFPRI had a, uh, together with colleagues in a maternal and child health uh, panel, had a paper published in Lancet in 2013, uh, summarizing the type of interventions that could improve nutritional status kind of globally. And they give kind of high marks to the potential for social protection to improve nutritional status, noting that the actual evidence that there is a, an effect is really small. And so again, if you look at just kind of, if you kind of review the literature on uh, do social protection programs as, as currently existing have big effects on nutritional status, the answer is certainly no. Um, there's some exceptional examples where it has mattered. Often transfers are higher or it's better targeted uh, to, to young women and uh, to young mothers and to to children, things like that. So there are, there are several examples out there. But in general, if you're advising government on the design of their social cash transfer program and, and they say, should we expect effects on nutrition, you have to say no, unless they're building in substantial other programming. Um, to make nutrition, to make uh, social protection programs more nutrition sensitive, you'd have to think much more about targeting and target um, women ideally at pregnancy phase, um, which is a, a difficult thing to do, but certainly very young children in the 1,000 days window. Um, you'd want to condition some of their activities on participation or the, the transfers on participation in some activities of the program, and I'll talk more about conditionality in a second. Um, the program would have to include uh, nutrition, explicit nutrition objectives and goals and actions, and that's where a lot of countries now, uh, Mali and Ethiopia in, in programs that we're studying, um, have now explicit objectives as part of their national social protection programs to improve nutrition. Um, and then you need to optimize women's role. And, and this is, I think, maybe the most important area. So think very much about how the program is going to interact with women's time use, with women's empowerment, um, with giving women access to knowledge uh, about uh, complementary food sources for their children to really improve the way that they can um, take advantage of the program to improve child nutrition. 
Um, I want to talk for a minute about conditionalities um, and incentives to improve child nutrition. So you can't really condition uh, cash transfers on nutrition improvements themselves, um, on weight gain, for example. I think Brazil tried this very briefly. It didn't go well. Um, there's a, you end up creating a perverse incentive where mothers don't want their children to actually gain weight because then they won't get the transfer. Um, so what's been much more routine in, in uh, transfer programs for a long time is actually to condition on things like um, attend, bring your children for regular checkups after delivery, um, con uh, conditioning on getting your children vaccinations, for example. Um, the problem often is that those services that you're linking the household to through conditionalities are actually not very high quality. Um, so you're, you're, you're requiring families to make sure that their children get these services. Um, but once they arrive at the, the health post, um, there's not an awful lot of services available for them. Um, it's still not necessarily a bad idea. I mean, those are things we do hope that those families are doing. But uh, in terms of get bang for the buck, we need to be improving the quality of the health services that are available when moms reach that health post. Um, and so far, that's been a sort of missing component. This was true of the early social protection work with education as well. They, they provided the increase in demand through conditional transfers, but when kids got to schools, the schools weren't ready. Um, so you can, a, a lot of what's gonna work in terms of uh, looking at, trying to improve the nutrition impacts of social protection is to build uh, a lot of the complementary services around households that they need to actually make a dent in nutritional status. So you need improvements in diet, you need improvements in access to healthcare in wash and sanitation. Um, you, you need mothers to have time to provide the caring services. So all of these things have to be addressed um, somehow. And so the trick really is what are the things that we're gonna do first and where, where will um, governments put the money? Um, in Ethiopia, we're actually working with the government of Ethiopia to uh, experiment on a number of different strategies here. So in the, the fourth phase of the Productive Safety Net Program in Ethiopia, which is their national social protection program, they did build in explicit nutrition objectives after this being kind of talked about from the very earliest stages of the PSNP. Um, after 10 years, they finally gotten there to making uh, nutrition an explicit objective. One, and they did a couple of things to try to um, to try to achieve those goals. One was to uh, change the direct support component of the program that doesn't require participation in public works for pregnant women. So um, women who become pregnant who are public works beneficiaries when they become pregnant are, are transferred immediately to a temporary direct support program where there's no work requirement and they're given, um, instead of just six months of transfers a year, they're given a full year of transfers um, during that temporary direct support period. Um, that's a really smart um, programmatic change to kind of take the burden off women as they become pregnant. They've also done a, quite a bit more to try to link households to health services and even allowed um, some households to meet their public, uh, the public works requirement by going to actually nutrition training programs. So these are all good ideas, um, but it's relatively light at least early on in terms of its potential to really move the needle on nutrition. So we're experimenting with other partners with UNICEF on a much more robust um, nutrition add-on to the program and with World Vision through USAID funding, uh, Food for Peace funding on a, essentially a graduation model social protection program. Um, and we're experimenting with them on sort of what works on a really beefed up program to provide a lot of additional services along with the Productive Safety Net program. Um, so we'll be kind of bringing evidence over the next couple of years on, on what works in those approaches. Um, there are other strategies that can be used uh, to, if you want to in a sense, use the, the transfers as an incentive for certain types of behavior. 
There's an interesting study that came out um, last year, in a, at least uh, in a, uh, not yet published, but an interesting paper out of Duke and JPL and IPA um, in Bangladesh showing that transfers that were linked to, um, to delay of child marriage in Bangladesh actually led to substantial delays in child marriage and substantial delays in early childbearing. Um, early childbearing is associated with very poor nutrition outcomes. So that transfer actually, which is not a lot more expensive than a typical social protection transfer, is likely to have a big effect on nutrition outcomes for children, future children, born to the women in those households. Um, so just an example of kind of intelligent ways to design transfers if you have a specific objective in mind. Um, finally, if I can, just a, uh, a two examples of sort of other ways in which social protection programs um, have had effects on nutrition. Again, from Bangladesh, um, we did a study there, and um, Reed actually referred to it, I think, during her visit to Bangladesh, was introduced to the results. Um, the Transfer Modality Research Initiative uh, experimented with cash transfers or food transfers with and without very intensive behavior change communication provided to mothers. Um, and the results of that study have found that cash plus the intensive BCC led to a really sharp reduction in stunting prevalence for children. Um, of about seven, almost seven and a half percentage points. So it's a big effect over a relatively short period of time. Um, and we have a lot of other work that we're doing at IFPRI on behavior change communication and found a lot of learning coming through just BCC, but it wasn't actually moving the needle much on stunting. But when you twin cash with the behavior change communication, we, there's really large effects. So we're interested to sort of bring those results to Africa and try them elsewhere um, and hope to be doing that soon. Um, I want to mention one more um, example. We did an evaluation uh, some years back of a school feeding program in Uganda. So school feeding is also a form of social protection. Um, we experimented with typical in-school meals that World Food Program was running um, and a, a household dry ration of the same composition. Um, it was a multiple micronutrient fortified food, so it's highly nutritious. And, and again, if we're thinking about how can social protection improve nutrition, we might want to think about providing some supplements. Um, and here what we found was big effects both in terms of school participation, but for adolescent girls we found really dramatic reductions in anemia prevalence um, from either school meals or these, again, highly nutritious take-home rations. Because the take-home rations were available at home, they actually, the, those rations actually improved mom's anemia status as well. And the school, in-school meals actually reduced anemia prevalence among preschool siblings of the kids in school because those siblings were hopping along and going to school as well just to get access to the food. Um, so because the, what was being provided was highly nutritious, we found really big effects there on anemia status. Um, okay, I'm, I wanna bring more of this to LEAP, but I'll save some of those thoughts for during the discussion. Okay. Thanks. Great, thanks Dan, that's a really helpful overview um, and a lot of fun papers to read. So um, let, let's turn to Laura then. Um, so, so we've asked Laura to come in and share her, her recent findings and thinking on uh, the other side of the, of the household economy, um, thinking about uh, livelihoods and savings behavior and, and uh, other household economic outcomes associated with cash transfers. Great, thank you, and thanks for inviting me to participate today. I really enjoyed the report itself and, and learned a lot. Um, but yeah, to, to talk more about um, this piece of work we did, the, the background on it is that it's uh, for a forthcoming World Bank report on uh, the evolution and potential for safety nets in Africa that's, that's due out in May, and the specific uh, chapter I worked on um, 
conducted a, a meta-analysis uh, covering studies uh, between 2005 and 2016. I think we covered about 55 studies uh, covering 27 safety net programs, most of the national ones across Africa um, and in 14 different countries. And, and that, that chapter will be co-authored with Colin Andrews also at the World Bank and um, Alan Xiao at MIT. Um, so just, just to keep it brief so that we have some time for discussion, I wanted to focus on four uh, key results from this meta-analysis. Um, first, we do find that, that safety nets across Africa are successful in having impacts on consumption. So on average, per dollar transferred through a safety net program led to about 74 cents increase in consumption. And that was particularly strong on food consumption. So we see that 36 cents is, is going on increased food consumption. So in terms of safety nets objectives towards improving basic levels of welfare and increasing equity, they do seem to be uh, a successful instrument in that regard. Uh, with regards to the dimension of promoting opportunity for the future, we did see some promising results on um, asset accumulation, particularly for livestock ownership. I think that's probably reflective of the livelihoods for most of the beneficiaries in, in well-targeted safety net programs. And so we saw in the order of 34% uh, increase in um, livestock ownership, uh, we see about a 10% increase across Africa in um, business durable investments. Um, and we also see some increases in earnings amongst the households that are beneficiaries um, and also of ownership of household enterprises. Um, we did look at results in health and education. On education, on average, the results were not particularly strong when you focus on safety nets that had a specific messaging around uh, benefiting children, um, targeting towards children, the results were stronger. But on average, for all safety nets that more focus on the extreme poor, we didn't see um, particularly significant changes on um, education outcomes, and we were mainly looking at school enrollment and school attendance. But that said, I think some of that might be to do with data quality issues, um, that where they were looking for changes, they were looking at primary school enrollment, but if you look at administrative data, um, we're already at like 97%, 98% reported enrollment, so it's, it's a bit hard to expect a, a program to, to, to move up from there. And, and then also in Africa, as, well, as is well known, um, the supply side of quality of education, teachers' attendance, attendance can also be a problem. Um, and then the fourth area on, on resilience, so we were looking at things like, um, do we see changes in savings? Uh, do we see changes in um, involvement in wage labor or in involvement of children in the household in, in labor activities? We saw pretty mixed results here. We saw weekly significant results on savings. Um, but again, I, I think this is more reflective of um, 
what you can expect from safety net programs, as I think is, is discussed in the report and in, in much other literature around the LEAP program, when it initially um, was piloted, the order of the magnitude of the transfers was around $8 a month. And so if you're targeting households that are below the poverty line, maybe even extremely poor, then when they get $8 a month, you probably want them to spend all of that $8 on improving their, their food consumption. And so it may be unrealistic for some of these safety net programs to expect particularly strong results on savings given the targeted populations. Um, so just in, in conclusion, um, we felt that what we learned from this safety net uh, review and meta-analysis was that safety nets were being very effective tools at um, reducing the poverty gap, bringing people to a higher uh, level of welfare, increasing their consumption, particularly increasing their food consumption, which is often cases the primary objective. But where safety nets maybe were, um, had ambitious goals and objectives to move more towards graduating households out of poverty, um, seeing significant gains on human development outcomes, um, seeing significant moves in uh, livelihood activities. Um, there were some cases where there was success and that was often due to a specific messaging or communication strategy of the program. For example, whether it was focused on children for education, whether it had some productive um, messaging in their communication strategy, and also when it was combined with um, complementary programs. But programs that on, them are on their own were giving small transfers um, on a regular basis. Um, given the level of poverty um, at an initial level within the households, it did seem slightly overambitious to expect graduation within at least the time frame that most of these evaluations were covered, which was normally between sort of one to three years. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that, and, and then maybe we can, we can move on to questions. Great, thank you very much, Laura. Um, I think I'm going to do things a little bit differently today. We have a, a relatively small group, and I'd really like to hear what are the questions that are on your mind. So I have a whole bunch that I could dominate the rest of the session with, but I'd like to open it up now and, and, and hear from the audience. And uh, if you do have a question for any of our speakers or, or for the whole panel, just uh, raise your hand so that we can make sure to run a mic over to you so that our online viewers are also able to hear you. And if you don't mind saying your name and where you're coming from, that would be great. Any questions? Emmy? Thanks, Emmy Simmons, um, CSIS, uh, as, a, as a senior advisor. Um, thanks very much for these presentations. All of you just brought new dimensions to the discussion. I have a comment for Rhoda and then a question, I think, which is probably more relevant to Dan and Laura. And the comment for Rhoda is, as I was listening to you just reel out the names of the different programs, has any thought been given to not just asking the ministry, okay, do a better job of coordination, but actually setting these programs up, sort of as Dan talked about, so that they are explicitly complementary and being implemented together. It just seemed to me that 
the, the potential for wasted resources between the programs was enormous. So that's kind of my comment. My other question, I guess, goes more to, to, to Dan and Laura, having to do with how people spent the transfers. Because as we've discovered here in the United States, the safety net SNAP, the food, the food safety net program, actually results in a major support for local producers, for local retailers, and they actually kind of gin up the market in er poor areas that would otherwise be somewhat not so, not so good. Are you seeing, particularly Laura, in your meta-analyses any kind of follow-on impacts in terms of the food markets, production for the food markets, employment in food markets, processing, that sort of thing, um, because the transfers are being focused in a specific area? So those are my questions. Other people. Thanks. We can take a few at once if anybody else has one right now. Maybe not yet. Dan? Wait for the mic, though, please. I, hi, I'm, my name is Dan Silverstein. I'm a private sector and capital markets advisor. Uh, to add a question onto Emmy's questions is uh, is going to load this cart fairly heavily, uh, and I want to take all the air out of the room here. But I'm, I'm looking at the recommendations number one that uh, as the new round of Feed the Future target countries develop their strategies, USAID should really pay attention to the fact that the most vulnerable may be systematically excluded from core value chains that undermines the stated objectives. That's exactly what USAID does. They completely ignore the, the, uh, the base of the pyramid. Well, I don't, I'm, I'm making a point here uh, that using some hyperbole. They don't completely ignore them, but they, they have a stated uh, objective of only basically being interested in the level of um, of uh, agriculture that can be commercialized, that for which there's uh, enterprise value, and and that by its very nature leaves out these most vulnerable. So, do do you think that they will that if this recommendation finds its way to USAID, they're actually going to seriously consider um, the value of this program, which seems to be terrific, and and change their strategic objectives? As I said, I didn't want to load on to No, I, I have a good answer for you. So thanks for the question. Okay, Anybody else right now, though? Hi, I'm, <coughs> I'm Anik Mukherjee from Center for Global Development. Just a question uh, on the, um, the scope of the program increasing. Is it due to donor funding, or is it the government uh, pooling in resources as well in terms of a long-term strategy for um, making this program much more sustainable? Okay, so let's let's turn to the panelists. But actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in on Dan's question first because um, I'm happy to report that we got some good feedback from colleagues uh, at the Bureau for Food Security just today, uh, acknowledging the report and emphasizing that they're working very hard to incorporate uh, a resilience lens into all of their Feed the Future Country strategies going forward. They said that the recommendation was well taken. So we'll see, but I'm happy to say that they've looked at it. A conversation I've been engaged with for a number of years, and they are just have not been at all responsive. So this is really great news. 
Well, we and should talk about program. it more. But I'm going to turn to the panelists so they can address the other questions. Anyone feel free to, to jump in. Sure. Yeah, I, I can. I can have an attempt. So, so the question was really around like spillover effects within communities. So we we did discuss this a little bit in the meta analysis. Um, the research that's been done on it um, is. Uh, I want to make sure that I, I reference it correctly. It's um, mainly from a group of researchers at the FAO, UNICEF, Uni. Um, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and Save the Children. Um, there's a couple of different consortiums, Protection to Production Project and also the Transfer Project. Um, and what they've been doing is they've been collecting data, first of all, within communities quite extensively to understand uh, where do people buy things from, what do they consume, who's producing things within the community. Um, then they measure um, how does a transfer program or a safety net program uh, change consumption levels and consumption or expenditure habits among the beneficiaries? And then based off of their baseline data collection and modeling simulations, they estimate, so it's not a direct empirical result, um, what has been the spillover within local communities. And so th there are some assumptions in their approach, but they do find pretty high spillover effects. So they, they report multiplier effects in the order of um, sort of 108 to 184%, or it depends how you want to report your multiplier. Um, and then, and if you look at their actual results, they're seeing that like these additional income gains are mainly occurring to the non-beneficiaries. Um, so based off of beneficiaries having that extra $15 a month spending on um, consumption needs within communities does lead to positive impacts um, with, within those communities. So that's, that's sort of where the, their research is at. Um, and there's also s some other work done um, that looks more at like if you look at programs that are more scaled up national level and then once sort of there's more arbitrage across markets, then potentially some of those effects will dilute. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's how much do you like computable general equilibrium models and, and uh, versus sort of impact evaluations that, that, that go more in depth at a, a household level. Yeah. Um, on the question, the issue on um, coordination and complementarity, I mean, in, in Ghana, so the LIP beneficiaries have been automatically uh, linked to the National Health Insurance Program. Now, the National Health Insurance Scheme is um, sort of a scheme that is uh, making healthcare affordable and accessible for every Ghanaian. Um, it is funded mainly through um, um, a tax component on, 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 on value-added tax. Uh, and then workers' contribution from this, the pension scheme. But for uh, informal sector people who do not contribute to the pension scheme, uh, they have to pay a certain amount of premium uh, to qualify or to be able to enjoy the national health uh, um, scheme. 
but for beneficiaries of LEAP, uh, they don't have to pay for anything. So automatically, once you are registered on LEAP, you don't have to pay for any premiums or for any renewal fees, and you enjoy all the services available to the paying members of the scheme. Uh, so that's what I would say, how much they've done uh, in terms of uh, complementarities. There's been a lot of talk, but uh, not so much has been realized uh, apart from the health insurance scheme, which is made available. The health insurance scheme itself also targets a lot of poor households, so indigenous people who are really, really poor are also automatically um, uh, covered under the scheme. Um, pregnant, um, lactating mothers are also covered under the scheme. However, with the new interventions that are coming up, uh, I mentioned uh, the one district, one factory, the, the um, planting for food and jobs and other programs, they are not necessarily looking at the poor. And so the ministry, uh, which has responsibility for coordination, would have to step up and, and, and do a lot of work in terms of how do we link beneficiaries to all these emerging opportunities uh, with implications for the poor and vulnerable. Um, there was a question about funding. I don't know whether it was meant for me. Uh, but currently, the LEAP is, is funded uh, mainly by government and also by development partners, almost 50-50% uh, funding. I think government has um, targeted to, to, to boost its funding by up to 60%, but I think uh, the government will have to still do more. Uh, of course, it comes back to how you prioritize um, across the different initiatives. We didn't have free, SHI, uh, free senior high school uh, program. We didn't have it um, about two years ago or even a year ago. But uh, suddenly we were able to get funding to support that. And if you look at the quantum of money that is going to programs like the LEAP, uh, which is not so, uh, I mean, uh, huge, uh, I think for the 2013-2015 year, LIP cost about around 9 million USD, 9.3, which is not so huge. I think we should be able to uh, do more to, to support in terms of uh, sustainable funding. Yeah. Dan, did you have anything to add? Or? No. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, Rhoda, since we're sort of on, on this um, track of, of uh, current uh, shifts within LEAP, I am curious to get back to this graduation question. So um, you noted uh, previously that the Minister of Gender and Social Protection, Gender, Children, and Social Protection, has now articulated that uh, the intention is for all profiles of LEAP beneficiaries to graduate within a two-year timeline. Um, do you think that is realistic? And, and what, other, um, what other conversation surrounds that in terms of the appropriate steps uh, along the way and, and how that would be calibrated? Thank you very much. Yes, so if you look at the original design of the LEAP program, program um, beneficiaries were uh, supposed to be graduating after a three-year period for households with some productive capacities, households with the vulnerable children and the rest. Um, in the case of households with, um, with, with the age at 65 years old and, 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 and plus, it, it was virtually like you are on it till you, you die. Uh, and then for people with um, severe forms of um, 
incapacities, they were supposed to be reassessed after a two-year period to see if they've improved, their general health conditions have improved, and to recertify them, either we keep them on the program or link them to other productive activities. And all of these have been taking place. Now, the ministers, um, um, I would say directive, because uh, we haven't seen much of engagement discussion on, on that. It just came out as, as, as a, direct, a directive that this is what is going to take place. And I think there are a lot of challenges. One, uh, it means they have to um, assess these beneficiaries. Um, if somebody has been on the program for uh, more than two years, is it just enough for the person to be uh, made to exit from the program. Um, like I said, if they are moving out of it, what are they moving on out onto? Uh, do they have any other means of support? So a lot will have to go into that, and I think it will be difficult for, for this to really materialize within this year, as has been indicated, uh, because we are looking at over 200,000 households, and um, a lot of them have been on the program. Uh, they meet the, 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 the threshold that she's talking about, which is you've been on it for more than two years. A lot of these beneficiaries have been on the program for more than two years. And so if you're going to, uh, to graduate them, it's going to be challenging for, for many of them. What are the new opportunities that are available to them? And, and I, I see that there will be some difficulty to, to, to actualize this. Sure, I agree. Um, I should note for those who are particularly interested in the Ghanaian context that the World Bank is also piloting um, another project that's funded by a Japanese trust fund. It's referenced briefly in the report um, to connect both LEAP and uh, participants of the Labor Intensive Public Works Program with other um, income generating activities. So that's a pilot that's ongoing um, in, a, in a small area of, I believe, uh, north, the upper west region. Yeah. Um, but it, it does get back to this question of when you're talking about linkages, whether it's to financial services, whether it's to health or, or education, and Dan, your, your point on um, the quality of the services that you're linking to is, is something worth really unpacking. Um, but, but the question I think that it raises regardless is where that, that sort of locus of responsibility really lies. So when I was uh, talking to folks who know a lot more about this than I do in, in Ghana, people felt very strongly that while the linkages are, are lacking, that it's it, it, that it can't be the onus of responsibility for the Ministry of Social Protection to engineer all that. So um, I'm curious if you have thoughts, uh, whether it's in the successful social behavior change space um, or, uh, or other examples that come to mind, uh, how, how this is managed well in, in practice in other countries that you've seen. Yeah, thanks, Reed. Uh, um, I think that is a real issue. And in the, um, the examples that we're seeing where, um, for example, really intensive behavior change communication um, is implemented around nutrition um, as a complementary activity linked with social protection transfers. Um, a lot of that is actually being implemented by the large international NGOs. Um, and, and in some cases in collaboration or in Bangladesh, sometimes local BRAC and other local NGOs are involved, but um, it's not always the government leading on that. Um, so there are some examples like that, but uh, the, the, you know, we're sort of at a proof of concept phase on some of these things. And so when we've been involved in some of the design discussions, we're trying to find the partner that's going to best be able to de design and implement a really intensive behavior change communication because we want to, we essentially wanted to test whether that plus transfers would work. 
and now we have an example in Bangladesh and maybe some other examples coming. Um, but certainly part, you know, so the first thing on the, on the Bangladesh study was, yeah, okay, we, it sort of worked. Um, but it was very intensive and not really scalable. And so now the question is what would be the combination of activities and that would be more scalable and appropriate. Um, so certainly that's likely in a sustainable model to involve like Ministry of Health getting much more involved in that. Um, often nutrition is not the highest priority of the ministries of health. Um, they're far more concerned with other major health problems. Um, and so it can sometimes be hard to engage them seriously in that. Um, and so it depends a lot on who the, on, on the, the ministries themselves and their, their ability to work together and their ability to prioritize um, these things, whether you're really gonna get there. Um, once you bring in graduation as another objective, it gets also, I think, much harder. Um, and the graduation problem, all the countries running large national programs, they're all dealing with this, right? Because they, they, um, as they scale these programs up, things are going well. They're starting to see impacts on consumption. Um, and, the, you know, there's this palpable sense that things are improving for households in the program. But how long can you keep that going? And how long can you keep beneficiaries on the program? Um, but often, so the graduation objective is not usually met by kind of objective criteria. Um, in the sense that these people are on a sustainable path to being self-sufficient and to no longer being poor and to being food secure. Um, and yet they can't keep the roles just forever growing. And so I think uh, many countries, I've seen this in Ethiopia as well, and I think it's, it's true in Ghana, are having to find, set a rule essentially, or some criteria by which they start to bring households off the program. Um, if you're trying to really invest in the types of activities that are gonna create graduation, um, probably those aren't the same activities that are gonna have the nutrition impacts. So there's a bit of a trade-off there. Thanks. Um, Laura, another question for you. You mentioned uh, before we began the session today, you're, you're thinking a bit um, going forward with some other projects related to targeting. Something that's been on my mind uh, in the time that I've been working on this project is the very heavy investments in Ghana's National Household Registry, which have been challenging uh, to marshal the resources for. Um, and this is intended to be a, a full census of the poor segments of the population uh, to, to assist with initial program targeting. But it's such a, a, a burdensome data collection process that would be uh, undertaken at a single time. And something else that's noteworthy about Ghana's program is that uh, LEAP has only been introduced in the communities where it operates a single time. So it's never gone back to any individual village to assess are there newly eligible beneficiaries, are there people who are no longer eligible. And as we think about targeting, not just initial targeting, but screening for graduation criteria, so dynamic targeting and assessing this churn of household economics. Laura, I, I'm just curious about your insights uh, into better, better ways to, to manage this burdensome data requirement uh, going forward. Easy question. <laughs> Okay, the easy answer is I don't have an answer right now. <laughs> it's something that I'm thinking about and definitely very interested in um, working on more. So, I mean, just, just a couple of things there. I mean, talking about this idea of household registries and uh, why we would do them. I mean, I think it is important to realize that while the activity of collecting that data might be time intensive and resource intensive, Part of the goal um, is that then you can better coordinate programs and, and remove duplication. 
And so while the exercise itself um, can be quite arduous, um, hopefully it would allow a more centralized repository of information on uh, the different households in a country, the different types of vulnerability, who is enrolled in which program, and therefore help, um, for example, the, the Ministry of Gender or Social Protection to uh, better coordinate uh, enrollment in different programs so that you have perhaps um, greater effects than if you just look at one program in isolation. So there are potential gains for this, this data collection effort. Um, that said, you know, are there other ways that we could be smart about having that information in one place? I think there probably are gains to be made there, like what data already exists across all of the ministries before having to go out and collect um, more information. Bringing all of that information together initially maybe is something that there should be like more emphasis on first before recollecting data. Um, and also making sure that even when you go through a more intensive data collection, how do you make sure that that, that data is um, accessible and usable to the people that might benefit from it at the same time while uh, protecting some data security concerns and, and privacy concerns. So, so I think there's, there's a bundle of, of, of difficult questions there. Um, and then, and then the, the question of, you know, could we use other data sources? So there are things around using call detail records which could be useful, for example, in, in situations of dynamic vulnerability. So it's been shown in a recent paper in Afghanistan that um, they could respond to a, a disaster response uh, situation by, by using call detail records when they had permission to access call detail records. So there's some data that exists out there that um, we don't need to collect and we could tap into and could potentially have um, benefits for social protection programming or response um, social assistance efforts. Um, then there's also data about uh, remotely sensed information from satellite imagery that's being used to maybe identify whether a, a district should have higher priority than another district in terms of being covered in a social program. And there is um, recent evidence that suggests that we, we can use some of that existing data for targeting at a district level. I think it's really tricky when you get down to the household <coughs> level and for social protection program safety nets, that's fundamentally where you're, you're trying to dial down to. Um, yes, you can see the roof material of a different building, but uh, there's not a whole lot of variation across building materials, but the level of poverty and need within a household um, can be something that, it, that there's a lot of variation over. So I think it's an area of work that's ongoing in, in, in research, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's a couple of my thoughts on it for now. Thanks. Um, okay, back to the audience. More questions. I know you've got some. Asma. Hi, As Asma Latif with Bread for the World. I was struck by um, one example I think you gave, Laura, about um, the impact of school feeding on um, adolescent anemia. And that was a, a pretty exciting result because it's such a hard population to target. Um, there's an ongoing debate about whether school feeding platforms are the most cost effective in terms of nutrition 
I'll come to it, but I'd be really interested to hear more about that in particular. Anybody else? The woman in the corner. Hello, my name is Mwandwe from Thousand Days here in DC. Uh, I picked up on something that Rhoda said around uh, involvement of civil society and how there's need for increased involvement. What do you think have been some of the barriers to their participation and what do you recognize as some of the clear entry points for them? And then the second thing is around what Asma brought up around school feeding. I'm curious to know if there's a way, any insights about combining uh, some of the agriculture programs happening in communities so that they can self-sustain the school feeding programs so that they are the source for the for a lot of the foods because in a lot of places the food is sourced from outside of communities and i'm curious to know what some of the insights are there thank you anybody else we have time for one or two more or we can just talk about this okay do you want to start on the civil society question, Rhoda? Yeah. Thank you very much for the questions. Uh, just before the civil society question on the issue of school feeding and, and, and linkages. So in Ghana, um, what uh, government has done is that the caterers for the school feeding program are required to source up to 80% of uh, raw materials from the local uh, communities. Um, the challenge has been that uh, because um, the release of funds sometimes uh, come very late. These caterers are virtually uh, left uh, on their own to find their own sources. And because of that, uh, sometimes they, they go beyond these communities to, to, to procure uh, raw materials. But that's uh, what has been indicated, that you have to source up to 80% of raw materials for, for these uh, meals. Uh, on the issue of CSOs, um, um, it's so, I'm not so sure of what the problem really is. I think it's a case of interest. Um, I think we have to interest ourselves. Uh, my organization, the Center for Democratic Development, um, about a year ago, uh, basically did an impact assessment of the LEAP program, but uh, that's how much we did. And uh, you don't see a lot more uh, of the other CSOs involved in the process. So I think it's a challenge that we ourselves have to take up. I don't see any particular barriers uh, preventing them from um, coming on board. So I think it's a challenge that they will have to uh, take up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sure. So um, following up on the, the study on school feeding and anemia. So. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's a, non, a, a very active debate and long-running debate on kind of the cost-effectiveness of school feeding generally. It tends to be that, you know, the kind of education folks look at it and they don't think it's cost-effective and the nutrition folks look at it and they don't think it's cost-effective. But if you start to aggregate up the potential benefits and looking at, you know, kind of cognitive benefits as, as well and executive function and things like that, um, the case for cost-effectiveness cost certainly improves. Um, it's also true that school feeding programs operate in just about every country in the world. Um, if you take them as kind of given, which they really are in many places, then the kind of marginal effectiveness of kind of making them really well designed um, and the potential returns to that actually are, are large. Um, yeah, for so uh, reaching adolescent girls to improve anemia status is really hard to do. There just aren't a lot of programs out there. We don't have a lot of ways to get them. So if you 
um, can reach them through schools, and if they're in schools, and this might be something where new freely, free uh, secondary education um, might add a lot of girls to schools. Um, and so then providing them with uh, highly nutritious food at school might be a very effective way to improve um, their anemia and iron status. Um, so, so, but I, you know, I want to be clear, you know, school feeding is likely not a cost-effective intervention ever for reducing stunting, for example. It's too late. Um, you've got to get children much younger for that. So it's more about micronutrient malnutrition and, and kind of aggregating up outcomes at the school age level. Um, yeah, there's, so thanks for the question on sort of locally sourcing food. I mean, that is really kind of where a lot of the effort right now is going for, for school feeding programs. Um, Aloe Jelly, who's a colleague in my division, works on that a lot, um, looking at homegrown school feeding programs. Um, I think there's a lot of different strategies that are being tried, uh, and it was nice to kind of hear the, the example of, of Ghana and how that's being done in Ghana. Um, I don't think there's a kind of, uh, I don't think it's been, it's been figured out yet, but I, I, I think it, it's ultimately, a lot of people recognize that's the right way to go, and so countries are trying to build in these, these requirements um, to essentially use that to induce demand um, locally for locally sourced foods. And the, you know, the mechanics usually involve bringing food from across the country and not really necessarily down the street. Um, but that should be just fine uh, for local economies. If, you know, if, if Ghana can produce 80% of the food needed for school meals within Ghana, um, that's a massive achievement. Great, thank you. And we are out of time. So if you have uh, additional questions, Excuse me, please don't hesitate to get in touch. We're happy to put you in touch with our panelists. Uh, we're also very happy to get your constructive criticism uh, on any of our work. So thank you for taking the time out of your schedules this afternoon. Um, we appreciate you coming. <laughs>